So maybe it be encouragement to you to do that uh, this week if you need to. <clears throat> so we're continuing our journey now through Ecclesiastes. We'll be in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, uh, verses 16 through 22. It's printed for you in the ESV translation and towed in your bulletin. And boys and girls, make sure you have your children's bulletin. You have your own translation in there, a place where you can ask questions. We'll be referring to that uh, in the sermon, so make sure you have that handy. Before we go to God's Word, let's again go to God in prayer. <clears throat> O oh, gracious God, Heavenly Father, Lord, as we come before Your inspired Word this morning, we ask that You would send us Your light and Your truth. Lord, let them lead us. Let them bring us to You. Oh, and then once there, Father, teach us Your ways that we might walk in Your truth. Unite our hearts, Lord, to fear Your name so that we can give thanks to You, our Lord and our God, with our whole heart and glorify Your name forever. Oh, confront us. Change us by Your Word through the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> I think I'm mad at God. So started a conversation this week with someone. I'm not going to say who because we've all been there, haven't we? This person perhaps might have been a little braver to actually say it out loud, but we've all thought it. And if you are a Christian and you haven't thought that, you are kidding yourself. It's actually a very appropriate thing for a struggling believer to say, I think I'm mad at God. Because it acknowledges God's control, His kingship, His rule and His authority over all things. And it owns the fact that we don't know God's plan which can be very frustrating. And that's right where we are in Ecclesiastes. If you remember where we've been in this book so far, we've been instructed by this pastor, philosopher, writing kind of under the guise of Solomon. It may be Solomon or it may be using Solomon as an example. It doesn't say. But regardless, he tells us to rest in the wisdom and understanding that God is in control. That he has this beautiful plan that we long to see, but we just can't grasp what we saw last week. And so instead we rest in His care, trusting in His promise where He says He wants to give us joy. He wants to give us pleasure. And He says He wants to undo our regrets and fix our mistakes we saw last week. What an incredible promise. That is life under God. But we're dual citizens. We live in that hope, but we also live in the messed up world under the sun, which is where Ecclesiastes spends most of its time. And so this pastor philosopher have kind of had us come up for air and look at a great picture of life under God, and it has us go right back in and look at life under the sun. He's going to dig in at the frustration of life under the sun so that we will run back to our Creator, hopefully, to bring meaning and purpose to our frustrating lives. So we examined life under God's plan last week. Now we're going to look at again life under the sun to see how life works when we leave God out of the equation. So with that in mind, would you look with me at Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 16 through 22. This is God's Word. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. 
I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts. For all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of beast goes down into the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Uh, this is God's Word. So as we went through that just real quickly there, you may have noticed that four times he said, I saw or I see. And just like in English, so too in Hebrew, it doesn't mean just I looked at it. It means I got it. I understood. I had an aha moment, which kind of gives us our theme for today. Here's what we're going to talk about. I want to put it in a sentence for you. You might remember at lunch or throughout the week in your private devotions. Here's what we're going to talk about today. Under the sun, we see ourselves and our world now. But God can show us what comes after. You see, in this broken world, we see junk death, and joy. But with Christ, we can see even more. So let's look at all that. Let's look at seeing the junk under the sun. This, this pastor philosopher jumps into this text with a kind of moreover or even. Can you believe this? And right before that, he, he just rejoiced that God is in control, that we can have confidence God will seek out our mistakes and fix our regrets. And now, after that great promise, he looks around at the junk in life. He looks at the court system, and he looks at the religious system, and he says, in those places, of all places, where you expect there to be good things, he finds wickedness. See, in a world under the sun, humans corrupt everything. In spite of God's beautiful plan, in spite of God's control that we saw just last week, there's still lots of junk under the sun, isn't there? And it's biblical for us to be honest about that. Life is not fair. The good guys do not always win. The worst of humanity is often elevated and celebrated. That's frustrating. And verse 17 assures us that God will take care of that in His timing and in His season. God will judge that wickedness. So don't ignore the pain and the junk around you, but don't let it define you and steal your joy that God offers you. Remember at the very start of this chapter that, that, that long poem about times and seasons? You might know the birds' songs from the 70s. You know, there is a time for everything. There is a season for everything under the sun. And he says the time of that wickedness and injustice is now. But there will be a time, a season of righteousness and justice. Now, now, this is a major issue, seeing the injustice in life and seeing how the world doesn't work and there's supposed to be a great God in control of all things. How does that work together? That's a major issue. He kind of just hits it real quick here in two verses and then moves on. But he's going to come back to this more extensively in chapter 4. This seems very cursory, I admit that, but he's going to dig in a little deeper. But for now, he just gives us the truth. God will take care of it. And now he moves on. 
Because the point is that seeing the junk under the sun should bother us. But it should also give us hope to see all that junk under the sun. Sounds a little weird, I know. Boys and girls, did you hear Pastor Sean just then? Saying that, that, that there are things that should make us hope in God when they don't work. Boys and girls, do, do you have things in your life that bother you? Do you? You can nod, it's okay. Right? Do you have things in your life? Maybe a mean person at school who has the teachers all fooled. I had that guy. I did not like that guy. Maybe there's a person at church who's not so nice. That happens, I know. Those things hurt our heart, don't they? They make us angry. They're frustrating. But look at God's word with me. Look at your translation of verse 16 and 17, the promise that he has for us. Here's what he says to those things. Even though God has a plan, this broken world still has bad judges and mean churches. That really bothers me. But God will fix all of that junk at the right time. See, God promises there's a season for everything. So there must be a season when that junk is undone. Isn't that great to know, boys and girls, that even though it's hard, sometimes God promises to fix it. See, for all of us, this pastor philosopher, this teacher, he understands that now. And so he moves on from the junk of life to, well, let's look at ourselves under the sun. Living in a world of junk kind of forces us sometimes to, to look in a mirror. Which is exactly what verse 18 says. God lets the junk remain for our benefit. It actually says that all that junk proves to us that without Him, in a world under the sun, remember under the sun means we exclude God from the equation, we assume He's not there, what does that world look like? In a world under the sun, we are beasts. We are animals. There's an anecdote that goes around in, in church world. I've looked it up several times. I can't find a primary source. We're just going to call it an anecdote. I can't guarantee this actually happened. But supposedly the great author G.K. Chesterton wrote great short stories, wrote a lot of essays about ethics and everything, lived about 120, 150 years ago. In his day, the Times of London newspaper posed the question, what is wrong with the world? And it sent an invitation to famous authors living in London. Please respond with an essay that we will publish. That what is wrong with the world? And his answer that he sent back was very short. It said, Dear Sir, I am G.K. Chesterton. See, the junk of the world is supposed to make us realize we are the problem with the world. In a culture under the sun that systematically denies God... In that world, humans resemble animals more and more. Now, this is not saying, we immediately interpret this, this is not saying that we act like beasts. That's not what it's saying. That may be true, but that's not what it's saying here. Rather, he's saying because we've eliminated God from the equation, we don't have any bigger meaning we can find in our life, just like animals don't. Because the same end that awaits them awaits us, namely death. We're born, we live, we die, and that's it under the sun. So he wants to dig into that. So let's dig into that with him. Look with me at verse uh, 19. He says this. He says, For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath. And man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. See, death comes for us just as it does for the animals, he says. Because we can build great cities. 
We can send people into space. We can cure diseases. We can invent the Internet, but eventually we're going to die just like the hamster we buried in the backyard or the goldfish we flushed last week. Under the sun, there's no difference between humans and animals. Again, under the sun is his key word for let's assume God's not there. Let's assume we've got to make it ourselves without God. Under the sun, there is no difference between animals and, and humans. We have no advantage, no superiority over them. Now, this is more than just some sort of little him whining or trivia. We, we live here. This, this idea affects you today. We'll do a little trivia. I, I bet someone here might have heard of this. Anybody ever heard of the Great Ape Project? Anyone? Anyone? Come on. Really? Okay. So, the Great Ape Project... These are a group of intellectuals and university professors and just average people donating to the cause. They are doing their best to get the five species of great apes classified as having human rights protections under the Geneva Conventions. They've won several court cases in Europe, and there was a very close case in New York State last month that some interpreted as a victory for them, but then others said it wasn't, but it's really close to giving them apes protections, civil rights protections under the various constitutions of countries. Many biologists now who are part of this movement and not, or not part of this movement are kind of starting to classify these five species as actually a different area as hominids, no longer as apes. Okay, well, thank you for that trivia, Pastor Sean. I, I can use that at work tomorrow. So, so what, right? They're being consistent, we chuckle, but they're being consistent in a culture such as ours, which is absolutely under the sun. Let's, 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 you know, the, the idea of a creator God has been jettisoned. There's no basis to claim superiority over the animals. Ecclesiastes observed observe this 3,000 years ago. They're just being consistent. In fact, two of the biggest movers and shakers in this are Richard Dawkins, who is, no, you know, very outspoken atheist, who admits, I have no basis for morality, but I think we should do this. Another big mover and shaker is Peter Singer. If you know anything about uh, ethics and modern philosophy, he is a big dog in modern philosophy. He's the guy who, he, he's known for more than this, but the biggie in church world, you hear about him a lot, is he's the guy who really has tried to make a philosophical case for abortion. And to be consistent, he has extended that case to even justifying infanticide and in some cases toddler side, kind of like a trial period abortion Again, being consistent. Those are the two biggest movers and shakers in this movement. Now, that doesn't make the movement bad. I'm just trying to show you people, these ideas have consequences. People are acting consistent with this, doing exactly what a 3,000-year-old ancient Near Eastern text said they would. It makes for a terribly frustrating, if consistent, world, doesn't it? And think about that. I mean, it's kind of dumb. I know I'm a preacher. I'm, I, I'm not supposed to say stuff like that. But, I mean, do animals practice animal rights? Right? No, right? The strong quite literally eat the weak. The sick and wounded are left behind. Animals treat each other terribly. In a, in a world under the sun, in a culture such as ours, there's no basis for saying humans shouldn't be like that. Ecclesiastes recognized it 3,000 years ago. Philosophers have wrestled with it ever since, especially in the last 200 years. Okay, let me give you another example. I bet you've heard this quote. Who has heard the quote, God is dead? Philosophical. Come on, more people have heard it, right? Okay. Right, it was said by a German philosopher named Nietzsche. Just hit the letter N and just kind of let your 
hands go on the keyboard and you'll spell his name right. Okay, Nietzsche, he said God is dead. But here's the, that's always used in church by people who be like, well, Nietzsche was wrong. Nietzsche was not boasting. He was not bragging. He wasn't really lamenting either. What he was saying is basically saying, look, this is where Europe is heading. Europe has jettisoned God. They have killed him. So this is what life is going to look like. And so he wrote ahead of his time saying, this is where your culture is going. He wasn't saying it's good or bad. He's saying, this is it. I want to give you a quote by Nietzsche to show you what I'm talking about, why this matters to us today. Here's in another place what Nietzsche said. He said this. He said, The masses say we are equal. Man is but man before God. We are all equal. Before God? But now this God has died. See what he's saying? He didn't know it, but he's borrowing from Ecclesiastes. Nietzsche looked at European culture 150 years ago-ish, grabbing onto Darwinian evolution and saying, this gives meaning and purpose to everything we know. This is the basis of our life, Darwinian evolution. Let's apply it to the social sciences. Let's apply it to politics. Let's apply it to theology. Let's apply it to everything in life. This is finally the answer we've been looking for. And he realized that when such a worldview took over and ejected God from the equation, this is what the world would look like. People would say, we're all equal. Um, Prove it. You're all equal under God, but God's dead. How are you equal now? Darwin says things are ranked, and so we get to say some people are better than others. See, in a culture where God is dead, Nietzsche basically came to the conclusion that, you know what, there's no reason to be kind, there's no reason to be loving, there's no reason to work for peace or human flourishing. Instead, you better get to the top of the pile of humanity and be the strongest one around because the other humans are going to eat you. And that's a massive oversimplification, okay? If you've read up on Nietzsche, I'm leaving some stuff out, but that is an accurate oversimplification. Maybe you're not up on your 19th century German philosophers. I I understand that. Let me give you something a little closer to home to show you why this matters to us today. I want to give you something from a a man named Arthur Leff. He was a Yale University law professor writing much more recently, struggling with the same issue. Here's how he put it for us in America. He says this. He says, as things are now, everything is up for grabs. Nevertheless, napalming babies is bad. Starving the poor is wicked. Buying and selling each other is depraved. There is such a thing as evil. All together now. Says who? God help us. See, he's echoing Ecclesiastes. In a world under the sun, with no God, we have no reason to have any concept of right and wrong. The concepts of protecting the weak or any higher purpose. They're just, we have decided this, but these people may disagree with us and we can't say we're right because... There's no one to arbitrate anymore. It makes for a terrible world, doesn't it? But here's the problem. We all do think things are right and wrong, don't we? Not just in the church. Every person has a concept of right and wrong. Why? Uh, Under the sun, in a culture that has rejected God, we have no reason we are We have no advantage over the animals, Ecclesiastes says, and we see it in our own culture. Now, if you're here today and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, I know I have have really stacked the deck. I admit that. I absolutely admit that. But I will challenge you. There is nothing you can appeal to outside of your personal preference or the preference of your culture to say, well, these things should not be this way. 
If there's another culture that disagrees with you, you have no reason except to say, well, I'm better than you, to say that you should do what my culture says. See, but Christians can. We can say, the Bible tells us we are made in God's image. Whether you're a Christian or not, you are made in God's image. Whether you're male or female, you are made in God's image. And as an image bearer, you deserve dignity and worth and freedom. And that should be protected and honored because when we protect and honor the image bearers, we protect and we honor the God in whose image you show. See, under the sun, we have no advantage over the animals. But under God, we do. Ecclesiastes wants you to feel that tension. Now that's as deep as I'm going to get today. For some of you, you've just taken a nice six-minute nap. That's fine. Wake back up. Okay, we're here. You know, if you want to continue this, though, if you want to have an engaging philosophical conversation, I would love to do that. Come see me after the service. You can email me. It's a really hard email address to remember. It's pastor at trinityorangeburg.com. I would love to get together with you. See, the point is here is that in a world that does not reference God, we have no advantage over the animals. It's what God's Word says. And our culture has said the same thing for at least 200 years. And our frustrations about this world prove it to us. So if God's not there, under the sun, how are we supposed to be happy? Because we all want to be happy. How are we supposed to find happiness in this life then? Which is right where our text goes next. He tells us, okay, well let's look at how, let's look at seeing a reward under the sun here in verses uh, 21 and 22. This pastor philosopher, he, he shows us the truth of a world that denies God. It's not a pretty picture. So he sort of cries out in frustration in, in verse 21. Is there anyone who can tell us what happens after we die? Anyone please? See, without the Creator God, does anyone really know what happens after death? Not, not really. So well, what do we do with our children when the family pet dies. How do we bring them comfort? Don't we usually say something along the lines of, well, he had a pretty happy and fulfilling life. We, we place peace and comfort in what the pet experienced during life because we don't know what happens to the dog after death, right? And that's exactly what this pastor philosopher says that we must say about ourselves in a world under the sun. Look with me at verse 22. He says this, he says, so I saw there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. You want to be happy? Well, he had, he's dead now, but he had a really nice life while he lived here. Does, does that work? Because we don't know what happens after death, so let's try to find joy here. Or here's how we put it for the kids. Boys and girls, let's look at your verse 22. Here's what he says. He says, So I understood that the best thing to do in this broken world is rejoice in our life now. That is all we've got. See, this is one of those things I love about the book of Ecclesiastes specifically and Scripture in general. It's so honest. I mean, this is humanity. We do this. We cry out for ultimate answers, and we don't find any that really satisfy. And so we look to having joy and pleasure in this life now because that's all we've got. And we do it through trying to get money, sex, and power. Those are the big three for our culture. Get those things and you can be happy. Don't have enough of those things, you're not going to be happy. But then we try to get those things, or maybe we do actually get those things, and they don't satisfy the ultimate thirsts in our heart, do they? And so we try to slake those ultimate thirsts with more of those things. 
And because it so clearly says that right here in sacred scripture, it gives us permission to say the same thing too. You know what I mean, right? For so long in church world, we were afraid to say things like this, like this doesn't satisfy me. We live in a broken world full of broken people who have created a broken culture and that culture defaults to ignoring God. We all live in that world. And it frustrates us and it doesn't satisfy us. Even those of us who have confessed faith in Christ as the resurrected Lord, we will have lifelong battles with doubt, with fear, with ultimate questions. And we need to be honest about having that lifelong battle because we live in a world where we're constantly pushed and pressed to ignore God, find answers elsewhere, and we can't find satisfying answers elsewhere. It happens to us. We need to be honest about that. Can I tell you, That even as a pastor, I have to struggle with doubt and ultimate questions. And John Mark would tell you the same thing. True confession time. You ready? Here we go. You may want to call a congregational meeting after church. We'll see. At least twice a month. At least without fail. Sometimes more. But at least twice a month. Wake up when the alarm clock goes off. And that first thought that invades my head is not, Oh man, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. I'd be like the Uber pastor if that was true. That's not true. Here's what happens couple times a month without fail you know there's no god why are you taking the money from these hard-working people why don't you go get a real job and make something of your life what are you doing at least twice a month sometimes three times without fail just first thought of the day i don't know if it comes from without or within i don't want to get into that i don't know it's just there it happens so often i have a very standard response it's like, Lord God, I believe, help my unbelief. That's all I say. That's all I got. But see, God's mercies are new every morning because we sin every day and we need it. And I grasp onto that because that's all I've got. See, the Bible makes those promises that we can hold on if we will. Now, for some of you who've been around church a while, you're mad at me right now. I know. Now I've got to talk to my kids about doubts. Thanks, Pastor Sean. Appreciate that. But can I just tell you, based on Ecclesiastes here, that there is a deeper relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ available for you when you are honest about your doubts and your struggles. When we take our unbelief to the Father and ask for help, He does. You can take your doubts and your beliefs and your struggles. You can also take them, and how radical is this? You could actually take them to your 242 group. Not only will you not be alone in your doubts when you do that, you will find help in your doubts, and by expressing yours, you will help others with theirs as well. Then we can have the kind of church culture that our neighbors who are riddled with doubts, they'll want to come to a church like that. They can encounter the real Jesus who has real answers for their real doubts. We can show them that He is an answer that satisfies the deepest longings of their hearts. See, we need a better answer than verse 22. Just go have your best life now. Good luck with that. That that is supposed to be unsatisfying. I mean, this... You, you realize he sets you up for failure. This pastor philosopher says, well, just go enjoy life. The same guy who just said the world is full of wickedness and junk and it makes us look at ourselves and say, we're no better than animals into that world. Yeah, go be happy. Have fun. Good luck with that. I mean, you know, don't worry, be happy may work for that song from the what, late 80s. But it doesn't work in real life. 
It's hard. It's not good enough because we can never grab enough joy. We can never squeeze out of life enough happiness to satisfy our hearts. We can never be gleeful enough to get rid of the doubts. And it leaves us even more frustrated when we try. So what do we do? Well, he's actually set us up for this failure, but he's also given us the answer. If you remember last week, or if you weren't here last week, we're going to turn back to verse 13. He prescribed this same thing. Here's what he said. He said, everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. See, it's the same thing, except there, when he's living under God, he's saying, this is what God gives us. When he's under the sun, he's like, I don't know. Good luck with that. Try to find it somewhere. See, we've excluded the source as a possibility under the sun, which leads us to complete frustration, which is where this text ends, seeing after the sun. He ends this passage with a really profound question. It's actually the same question from verse 21, just repeated a little differently. Look with me at the very last part of verse 22. He says this, Who can bring him to see what will be after him? See, to the unfulfilling answer of just find joy in life right now, he asks, can someone else give me an answer? Is there someone else who can give me some other meaning? Show me a more solid way. To the answer of just go and be happy, we should have so much frustration with a life under the sun that it makes us long for something or someone different. It makes us long... I mean, you know where I'm going. We're in a church. It makes us long, instead of life under the sun, to be a life with God. What he showed us, that ideal picture last week. Remember we said Ecclesiastes asks the questions the rest of Scripture answers. And so this, this question of verse 22 actually has its answer in the person and work of Jesus Christ. I mean, the, the injustice and the wickedness in the world around us that just irks us, that we know is there, we don't talk about it very much, but it's there. It just drives us crazy. The insult of death coming to us just like it did to our dog hangs over us like a cloud. Joy is held out to us like it is in verse 22. Just take it, but we can never quite grasp it. Do you realize that Jesus Christ experienced every one of those things? He was so upset at unjust judges and leaders that he called them vipers to their face. That's why they wanted to kill him. He was so bothered at the wickedness in God's house that he did the full Tasmanian devil kicking things and throwing people out in the temple courtyards, yelling at him the whole time. He was so upset at what death does to his creatures, he wept at the tomb of Lazarus, even though he knew he's about to bring him back. And then he went to war with death on the cross, defeating it in his resurrection. And then instead of joy... His entire life, he was what? He was a man of sorrows laden with grief. But the book of Hebrews tells us that it was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross. See, he was seeking after joy too. Joy was held out to him, and that joy was through the cross. And unlike us, he went and got it. And then he offers that joy that he earned to you as a gift. You see, the biblical picture here is that Jesus Christ is one of us. He has walked this path of frustration. He has battled the despair caused by death. He has sought after joy. But unlike us, He got it, and now He offers it to you as a gift. 
The Gospel is shown here in Ecclesiastes that the Lord Jesus Christ Himself invaded this dark, frustrating world under the sun to bring us joy and happiness at the price of Jesus' death. So now, in the victory of His resurrection from death, He holds out joy and happiness to you to take as a gift. Now this is for those of you who who don't yet know Christ as Savior. But for those of you who have been around a while, it's not only for them. You and I daily need the grace of God available to us in Jesus Christ. We still live under the sun. And so we are prone to think and live as if there is no God. We are prone to think and live, aren't we? As if we have to earn God's continuing favor for us by our work. Yes, He saved us by grace through faith back then. But now our joy and our happiness come from really impressing Him by being really religious and being kind of judgmental to those who aren't. That impresses God and that's how we're happy. That's how we have joy. But no, that is not the gospel and that is a recipe for frustration. Get out of that mindset. Instead, recognize the joy of the gospel that you have been adopted as a child of the Father. He loves you more than you can even imagine. He pours loving acceptance over you through Jesus Christ and gives you joy. So let go of trying to perform for Him. Rest in Christ alone for your status before God and you will have this promised joy. And if you don't know Christ like this, if you don't have this kind of joy and peace in your life, you can have it right now. You don't have to do anything to earn it. Man, just forget everything you think you know about Christianity, everything you think you know about religion, and just confess your inability and then place your faith and trust in Christ. He will bring you joy and peace. And don't wait. Do it now. Let's pray together. Oh, gracious God, Heavenly Father, Lord, we confess, those of us who've been around for a while, we, we leak, we keep trying to earn your favor through our work and our performance, and it's exhausting and frustrating. Would you help us? Lord, we admit that we ourselves are riddled with doubts and we're so afraid to talk about them that we just swallow them and stay frustrated. Lord, would you help us to trust you and to take our doubts to you but also, Lord, to take our doubts to our community that we might grow. Oh, Lord, would you give us the joy you've promised. And Lord Jesus, we ask that as you have been shown to be crucified, buried and resurrected for sinners, that you would be true to your promise that as you have been lifted up, you will draw all people to yourself. Oh, will you do your work of salvation even this day, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.